0: Amy and I were sitting on the back porch. We have a screened in back porch. We're just sitting out there relaxing and the cats started freaking out over by the screen, saw something outside. So we walked out there and there was a little bitty baby bird, just a little bitty guy. He had no feathers and he's completely bald and he was just helpless laying there in one of our flower beds. And it appeared that he'd fallen out of a nest about 40 feet up above our house. Landed on the roof of our house, slid 20, 23 feet somewhere in there down into the gutter, waddled around in the gutter and went down the downspout and ended up in our flower bed. And he's a baby starling. We did everything we could to get the mom to come back. We, put, we made a little nest and put it up in the gutter. After quite a while, probably six hours, something like that, we realized that the mom wasn't coming back and is going to die if we didn't do anything. So we took the bird in and got online and found out a lot about raising a baby starling. And we ended up having to feed the bird every 20 to 30 minutes for 12 to 13 hours a day, you know, the daylight hours. I had to feed it every 20 to 30 minutes. And we did that. We did that for a week. He slowly got feathers and started looking different. We did that for two weeks and he got a lot of feathers and started looking like a bird and he's just living on our back porch and then it got to where we could just feed him every hour as i record this today he's 29 days old he's been flying for a little over a week and when i walk outside he lands on my shoulder and i give him a little something to eat and he's one of our buddies he's part of the family we named him carl he's a talkative guy and he seems to enjoy our company but it was pretty fun to watch him every step of the way and, and see him start out as just a little helpless guy to turn into this beautiful bird that you know flies around and is happy to see every day. If you want to see pictures of him, you can go to my social media stuff. And I've been posting some pictures up there and people seem to be enjoying it. But hopefully Carl will be a friend for a long, long time. this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Melanie Howard. Melanie is the owner and president of a publishing company called Harlan Howard Songs. You can find out everything you need to know about Melanie at harlanhoward.com. I reached out to Melanie and asked her if she would be nice enough to come on and share some stories about her late husband, Harlan Howard. Harlan Howard was a great, great songwriter. He wrote classics like Pick Me Up on Your Way Down, I Fall to Pieces, Busted, Heartaches by the Number, Tiger by the Tail. There's just so many hits that he wrote. By 1965, he had over 400 songs cut, and he'd written over 4,000 songs in his lifetime. He's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and he's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Just an amazing, amazing man. And he was around in the glory days of of Nashville. Just would have been a wonderful time to be in town. And she shared a lot of great stories about his day-to-day life and some of the people he hung out with. She was nice enough to invite me over to her office near Music Row. We sat down, and we just had a really, really good chat. And she's a very nice person to be around, and she was very generous with her time, and I appreciate that. We got so much good stuff that I'll end up doing a second episode somewhere down the road. But here's Melanie Howard.
1: He was in the military uh, at Fort Benning. That was in Georgia. Uh, And then he went to California because it was a conscious effort on his part. He knew that California had factories, and music, Nashville, just music. So he didn't know how he was going to make a living with his eighth grade education, so he went to California first. He announced to his family that he was moving to California, and do you want the real story?
0: Yeah, yeah. He,
1: he announced to his family, and it was a hodgepodge family. He started out life with his dad. His mother was missing. He ended up at four years old in an orphanage because his dad was an alcoholic, could not make it to his job every day. So he was removed from the home. Uh, A Methodist minister took his, or no, uh, the orphanage took his picture and said, does anybody know who this child, where his mother is? And she was, the Methodist minister said, I know where she is and she's living in sin. And this is like 1935 or something, thirty-six. And so she was found. They were like, you have an eight-year-old son living in an orphanage. You need to come get him. And she did. And it was a very tumultuous relationship between Harlan, his mother, his stepfather. He had a half-brother who was an albino named Joe Floyd Whitey. They called him Whitey, obviously, because of his albinoism. And Harlan was a thug, and he was mean to him. And so he got thrown out of the house. So he knew he had a mother that lived somewhere. He reconnected with her after his stint in the Army. And he reconnected with Joe, and Joe had a job that was a, a jukebox operation. And he was legally blind, so he hired Harlan to help him with his jukebox and said, you know, we'll you'll drive me around and I'll fix the jukeboxes, and you can put the records in and coordinate the little, because that was the hardest part for Joe. Joe could fix anything. He made his own steel play, steel guitar. So Harlan introduced Whitey to the girl at the Dairy Dip, and Harlan said, I was shy, but he was even more shy. So uh, Harlan, when he announced to everybody, this is where this story is going, when he announced to everybody that he was moving to California, Joe's then wife, said, take me with you, and Harlan did, so he kind of ran off with his brothers <laughs> wife to California, which was a huge scandal in and of itself, uh, and they got to Tucson, and Harlan got polio, I said, boy, that is karma, biting you in the butt right there, I mean, he got polio, couldn't walk, by the time he had recovered from polio and was back to walking, Trudy, uh, his then wife, was having an affair with who she was working with. So they went off to California. Harlan's like, gosh, you beat me to California. So Harlan stayed in Tucson until he could get enough money to get a car and finally get his, make his way to California. He not Well, not until he got to California. Yes, he had been writing songs. Kind of in the back of his mind, he was writing songs. He had learned at Fort Benning he had learned to play the guitar. Somebody ta- taught him three chords. And Harlan had really signed up because he thought he was going to s- go to Japan, see the world. And he was selected by his jump masters to stay and be a jump master. And Harlan's like, I don't like jumping out of airplanes. And they were like, well, we like you, so you're not going anywhere. You're going to be a jump master. So while all his friends shipped off, Harlan had to stay behind. And he was like, can you imagine me jumping out of an airplane? And I was like, no, heavens, no. <laughs> But he, you know, they thought he had talent and they liked his entertainment and stuff. He would sit around and play the guitar for the guys. So they wanted to keep him. So he he did not see the world at that point in time. Well, and when he was in California, he didn't know anybody when he first got there. Uh, And he always had menial jobs because he did not finish the eighth grade. He said he, you know, was going to claim it as an eighth grade education, he said. But he didn't make it all the way through the eighth grade. So he was a common laborer. And one of the jobs that he had was he drove a fork truck that uh, loaded up publications, books, magazines. And so he was only busy when the trucks pulled into the dock and he had to uh, load the trucks up. In between those times, he would sit and, and write on the back of packing slips. Some days he'd leave work with one song. Some days he'd have six in his pocket. But from his stint in the Army, he wrote Pick Me Up on Your Way Down, which was kind of about the first wife leaving him, you know, and, and he loved, he was a voracious reader, and that has haughty and so rude, and he, his entire life, loved the word, like, haughty and rude and gloaming, that's in one of his songs. He loved to find words and use them in songs that you wouldn't expect to see, so... Uh, he wrote Heartaches by the Number about being in the military. And so he, he was writing songs. He had this friend, and I don't remember his name, uh, but he was a bricklayer. And he said, Harlan, I'm sending some songs to Pamper in Nashville. I'm starting to get a few cuts. Nothing big, but he said, here's the guy's name and number. And it was Hank Cochran, who was the song plugger for Pamper, and gave him his information. So Harlan sent him, pick me up on your way down and Hardix by the Number, I believe, at the same time. And then Charlie Walker had a hit on Pick Me Up on Your Way Down, and Harlan had a hit with Ray Price and Guy Mitchell on Hardix by the Number. And he'd made $27 in music up to that point. And when he got paid, he said one day he was driving in California from his job to his house, and he said he had to stop every morning and get two quarts of recycled oil, one to make it to work, one to make it home. And he was like, I hate California because I'm personally responsible for the smog there. He said, when I lived there, I had a car. And he's like, it was like fogging for mosquitoes. <laughs> he said, nobody would be behind me because it was such, you know, black smoke coming out of my car. And uh, he got home and he had gotten two checks, one for 48000 and one for 55000 from those two songs. Yes, he and Buck were roommates. And, you know, I heard them laugh many a times about Harlan needing a place to stay. And so he stayed at Bucks and Bucks only had a three-legged bed. And Harlan's like, what? You want me to sleep on a bed that has three legs? <laughs> and so they got a brick. <laughs> they got a like a bricko block you know, and pop, propped up the bed. And they were, you know, start, they called themselves starvation buddies when they, neither one of them had anything. And they were riding. I know they went over to Wynn Stewart's, I think he lived in a, trailer or something, they went in over to Wynn Stewart's house and they were knocking on the door and he opened up and came outside and he's like, excuse me, boys, I think I've got a heartache. And he walked back inside and Harlan and Buck were like, let's write that. Let's write that. <laughs> so they were like, thanks, Wim, for the title. So, yes, they were, you know, buddies and from the 50s.
0: Is this the era when, um, or is this the time when Buck Owens was playing as a session guitar player for some of the Capitol stuff?
1: Yes, he was. He was. He was just starting to get traction of his own, and he and Harlan wrote some songs. Uh, you know, and they were kind of did a little tour across Texas. I know Harlan said one time he spent five days in the car in the back seat with Buck, and Buck kept saying, "You know, we got to write that." You know, Esso was the big gas station in America at the time. Or one of the big ones. And so in their campaign slogan was, put a tiger in your tank. And he was like, we need to write that. We need to write that. And Harlan rolled his eyes. He said after five days, he finally was like, Buck, here's your song. And he'd given him the lyrics. Buck called him a couple of weeks later and said, Harlan, I recorded our song. And he's like, don't do it. It'll ruin your career. And he's like, no, it's going to be a hit. And Harlan's like, no, it's. I was just joking. <laughs> it's the worst thing I've ever written. And so the next week, Harlan's like, well, let's see. What you know? What our song's doing? And he looked in the Billboard ninety to a hundred because it was hundred songs at the time. And Harlan's like, I knew it. I knew it was terrible. I knew nobody was gonna like it. And so he said, you know, it wasn't ninety to a hundred. So he thought, what are my buddies doing in the top ten? And and Tiger by the Tail was number eight first week out. <laughs> and so he called Buck, and Buck, you know, of course, made him eat crow and said, you know, I told you it was gonna be huge. That would have been the end of 59, because he told Jan, his wife at the time, Jan Howard, we're, June of 6, when the boys get out of school, we're moving to Nashville. He said, I have enough money to last for a year or two if I hit it hard, and you know, we're packing up and leaving town. So he moved to Nashville June the 6th, 1960.
0: It Would it be fair to say that he kind of came in through the front door since he had these hits already? Uh, if there's such thing as that, well, yes,
1: I was going to say in Harlan's mind, no, you know, and in other people's minds, probably. Yes. You know, in retrospect, yes, he probably did come in the front door because it was wide open at the time Nashville, you know, there was maybe 12 writers here, nothing like there is today. So, you know, but Harlan came with the mentality of I've got to work cuz if this doesn't work out this is my dream. This is this is really is what my whole life has gotten me to this point is I am a songwriter. I mean at first when he was a little kid and he would listen to the Opry on the radio, he was so enamored with it. Then when he heard uh Ernest Tubb, he was just like, "Oh my gosh," cuz everything before that was kind of a high, tinny, bluegrassy Bill Monroe uh, but then he heard, I'm walking the floor. Gosh, you don't make me sing. But anyway, it was on the beat, and Harlem was just like, his shoulders must be this wide. And he said, when I met him, he was tall and skinny. You know, didn't look like his voice in my mind, but he was like, I'm going to be Ernest Tubb. And then he realized there is an Ernest Tubb, and then thought, I'm going to write songs for Ernest Tubb. And even when he was 12 years old, that's his focus was, I want to write songs like I'm hearing on the Philco radio Coming from the opera, he was just, that's, that was the, he, his single focus. And the, if that didn't work out, his wife, wife number one was like, Harlan, I don't want you to be, be a hilly billy songwriter. She's like, and Harlan's like it's hillbilly, and she was like, he's like, she kept calling it hillybilly, and Harlan's like, oh, it just made me mad every time she said hillybilly. And she was like, I, you know, I'd like to be married to a doctor or a lawyer. And Harlan's like, do, honey, do you realize that I have to go back and finish ninth grade, and then high school, and then college? He's like, I don't have time to be a hillbilly songwriter or a doctor, or a lawyer. I'm I'm going to be a hillbilly songwriter. So <clears throat> that relationship didn't work out. <laughs> As as did most of them, they didn't work out. Uh, well, he hung out with you know people who entertained him, like Willie and uh, Patsy. I mean, he loved hanging out at Tootsie's. I, I just saw something on YouTube where Harlan and Willie and Bobby Bear. Bobby Bear is another friend from the '50s in California. He called him Booby. Booby. <laughs> But Harlan said, you know, it cost tootsies probably cost him a couple of marriages. I heard him say something really great. He said, you know, I used to be on the wall. Now I think I'm just a picture, you know, behind a picture. Because, you know, in 30, 40 years at Tootsies, there's lots of pictures up there. But he said he probably lost, you know, two wives over hanging out with Roger Miller. He thought Roger was the funniest guy. And, you know, Harlan's like, I said, Harlan, you're funny. He said, oh, I'm not funny. Roger now, he's funny. And so he just loved hanging out with songwriters and singers who could tell stories and entertain. And that's kind of where the whole guitar swapping, you know, they'd sit around in upstairs the back room of Tootsies and, you know, just pass the guitar around, play their newest songs.
0: On any given night, who would, who would be there doing that?
1: Uh, it could be Willie. It could be Waylon, you know, a couple of years later. Uh, it could be, it would be Roger Miller. Um, it would be Patsy. Not many girls in the club. Patsy was one of the few women that they would and she would just laugh. He'd say she'd tell a joke and she'd slap her thigh and she'd laugh at her own jokes. And she was just she was kind of like one of the guys. Um, It might be uh, Tom T. Hall. Chris got here in the 70s. In the 60s, other writers that were here um, having hits and just hanging out. Uh, Hawkshaw Hawkins was his best friend. He was one of the. A uh, gentleman killed in the plane crash with Patsy. And Harden's like, I didn't even really notice it, until, or I didn't even know we were best friends until he was gone. And I thought, oh, I miss my friend because I used to go bowling all the time, and he lived in Madison. As did most people at that time,
0: was Madison Bowl open then Yeah, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yep, still there. I went there not too rec- or not too long ago, and I thought, oh, Harlan used to throw a ball down this lane,
0: <laughs> who else used to bowl there
1: <clears throat> well, he and Hawkshaw they had bowling leagues, you know, and I was like Harlan in the <laughs> bowling League that is you know I guess you know sign of the times, but I just can't imagine the Harlan that I knew would never have gone bowling, <laughs> so young Harlan, yes, and I love talking to quirky his uh son with Jan uh, adopted son because he can tell me stories of what Harlan was like he said told me the other day he said I remember when the first time I met him in California he came walking down the sidewalk towards my house and I thought that is the biggest man I've ever seen and his hands you know were huge and he was like whoo, he was scary and I'm just like scary Harlan you know can't imagine that but I have seen pictures of him when he was younger and you know he was tall and thin and had a flat top as he said he could put a frying pan on there and it would still you know it would hold the frying pan up <laughs> He'd have, he had a lot of hair well he did live off of when he first moved here Hank Cochran said oh I've got a house he had and it, it's on Graycroft and so I and I go down Graycroft all the time going to the horses because my horses are out in Old Hickory. And so I ran downstairs recently. I mean, I've been going out there for 10 years, and I thought, I wonder which house Harlan lived in on Graycroft. And so I went downstairs, looked in the file, because Harlan's got a file for everything down in the basement, and it gave me the house number. So the next time I went by there, I pulled in. I thought, this is the house that started it all for Harlan in Nashville. When he moved out, Willie moved in. When Willie moved out, you know, so there was just a bunch of people that lived in that one particular house as a rental. Harlan had a, for years, had the Harlan Howard birthday bash. That really started, he had this huge house up on, in Green Hills, on this hill, and he would have these huge parties with three or four hundred people. They'd park down at the church and this bus would bring him up this long hill. The house burned to the ground years later, but Harlan turned a six-car garage into a music room. And so he, you know, loved hanging out with writers. He loved their stories and stuff, so Harlan started these picking parties, guitar swaps, guitar pulls, which they kind of became known as. Then it got too crazy to have at his house, so he started having them at BMI in the parking lot. And he w- his only requirement was you had to have a hit to get on the birthday bash. At least one, maybe two.
0: What constitutes a hit?
1: <laughs> uh, well, at the time, you know, a radio hit. So, you know, certainly a top Five, top 10 something like that didn't necessarily have to be a number one but you had to have a hit to get on it and harlan would pick the guest and i think there was maybe 14 15 different birthday bashes that he hosted and it was all for uh the nashville songwriters association and there used to be an organization called the nea which was nashville entertainment association i believe anyway so he used to split the money between those two organizations but after a while he kind of you know, said, let's just give all the money to the Songwriters Association because he wanted to have a Songwriters Hall of Fame, which we finally now do after all these years.
0: Was Harlan there when she cut A uh, Fall to Pieces?
1: Yes. Well, the story that Harlan told me was that Patsy had not had a hit for seven years, and then she, but she was under contract, I believe, at Four Star, and so they kind of had control over what she cut. And Owen was getting ready to go in and he was looking for songs. And so Patsy had two songs. And Owen said, I tell you what, we're going to cut your two, but you're going to cut these two too. So he was trying to kind of outsmart her because he knew that she didn't have, she hadn't had hits. So something was wrong. Somebody's picker was not working. So he cut I Fall to Pieces and Crazy on the same session.
0: And that was Owen Bradley?
1: That was Owen Bradley. And Patsy loved. Crazy, and she sang it. Harlan said three or four hundred times, and Owen kept saying, "That's good enough, Patsy. We got it. We got it." No, I can do it better. She loved it when she did. I fall to pieces. <laughs> uh She only sang it once or twice because it's you know you have to start at your very lowest register and go to your highest register. She did not like I fall to pieces. She was not a fan of it. She was kind of like, get, "Get, let's get through with that one so we can get to the one that I really like, which was crazy." And so when they left there, Harlan's like, "Yeah, we all knew who was going to have you know the next Patsy." Yep. but they didn't put out crazy first. They ended up putting out "I Fall to Pieces," and I think it was on the charts for a year, if I remember correctly.
0: Those were both cut in one day. In one day. You remember who was on the session? Was that Bob Moore, you know, Grady Martin? I, or?
1: Probably, but I don't remember since that was really before my time. Harlan said, "Yeah, I was," because I was born in '59. Harlan's like, "I was just waiting around for you to be born." He said, "I made it to Nashville." By the time you got here, he's like, I was waiting for you to grow up, <laughs> child bride.
0: How differently was he treated around town after I fought a piece of this big?
1: Well, yeah. that so that was a hit in sixty sixty one. Harlan had just moved here. And the first BMI banquet that he went to, Harlan got 10 out of 40 awards. He was so embarrassed. He didn't even have, you know, nice clothes or anything. And he had to go up on stage. And <laughs> he was like, oh, he's like, I couldn't even look at, you know, at people. He said, I just kept my head down. He said, the next year, I didn't get any of awards. He said, I thought, boy, you made a pig of yourself last year. And he wasn't even going to go. He was so embarrassed. And he said, you know, like a little moment of clarity that he uh, was like, you better get down there and clap for your friends that, who clapped for you last year when you got 10 out of 40. And he said it was the most fun he'd ever had at a BMI banquet. The next year, he had no pressure. He knew he wasn't going to get anything. He said, but boy, when you go from, you know, 25% to zero, he's like it was a major adjustment for himself to go, ooh, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. But, I mean, he was having hits. They just, you know, didn't stack up like, you know, the year before when he had so many.
0: He could afford a nice suit that year. Yes, he
1: could. I mean, I know some Willie stories, none that I can tell. <laughs> no, no. I do know some Willie stories, but, uh, but I know Harlan was sitting at the, there was a place here in Nashville on the road called Sammy B's, and somebody said, Harlan, phone. And so he's like, what? And he's like, phone call. And so he's in there, and it was noisy, and he said, hello. And they, the guy said, hey, Harlan, it's Willie. And Harlan's like, Billy? And Harlan, who, Billy? (laughs) And Willie's like, Willie. And Harlan's like, who, Billy, who? I don't think I know you. (laughs) And Harlan's like, hold on, let me go outside. So he walked outside and he's like, who is this? And he said, Willie. And Harlan's like, Willie, what are you doing? How'd you find me here? And he said, well, he said, I can't remember who told him. Someone said, this is your hangout. And he said, but I'm going to be in the alley behind Tootsie's, between the Ryman and Tootsie's. He's like, you want to come over tonight and hang out? And Harlan's like, yeah, I'll be there. Let me see if the wife wants to go. <laughs> so we go over there. And you know, it's just it, it it's fun to be in that the bus, you know, in that because they go, they go back so far. I mean, when when the bus door opened, it was uh Chris Christofferson and I was just like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love Chris Christopherson. I always have. I was like a star is born, you know. Harlan's like, Chris, did I tell you that my wife had a picture of of you up in her dorm room? I was like, Harlan, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. But anyway, but it was just fun to see those guys hang out and reminisce. You know, I mean, everybody back then wrote by themselves. You know, they were friends and friendly and friendly competitors, but... You know, Harlan never co-wrote, really. I mean, he did co-write Off All the Pieces, but that's the only song really they ever wrote together. But for the most part, you know, guys stayed at home, wrote, and then went and hung out. I mean, Harlan, you know, loved to just hang out and, you know, swap songs. Like to play. I mean, I, I know he, when he had wilderness music uh, in the probably late 60s, early 70s, he, you know, it was an open door policy. He said, he, you know, look down. Here comes uh, Lefty Frizzell, bottle of vodka, coming up the steps. You know, here comes Waylon, six pack, in each hand, you know, coming up the steps. And he would say, you know, Harlan, what would you write today? And Harlan's like, oh, will write this. And I wrote this one. I finished up this one. And he was like, I'm going to record, you know, these two. And, you know, he got something like 70 Waylon cuts. That way. Nothing, you know, really huge at the time. That was more in the early Waylon days, but, you know, before the outlaw movement.
0: It was pretty unheard of for someone to record one songwriter's songs for a whole album. Mm -hmm. But Waylon did that Mm -hmm. with with Harlan. And the
1: picture is right behind me of them in the studio. Harlan with a flat top and Waylon with a sort of a flat top.
0: Is that the Quonset hut?
1: Yep. Uh, That is.
0: They were great friends. You
1: know what? Harlan told me that uh, in the 70s. I mean, Harlan drank a lot, but he didn't do drugs. Oh, he might have done a few diet pills in the day. But one day, Harlan went up to Waylan and said, Pal, I just don't like what you're doing. You're killing yourself. I'm afraid, you know, I'm going to read about you in the paper and it's not going to be good. And Waylan, you know, being high at the time, said, If you don't like it, don't hang out with me. And Harlan said, Well, I think that's exactly what I'm going to do. And they did not speak for eight years. And one day the phone rang and I was like, Harlan, it's Waylon. He's like, Waylon. And Waylon said, Pal, I want to tell you out of everybody, you're the only one that told me, you know, you didn't like what I was doing and you weren't going to hang out with me. And he said, I really appreciate that because that's a true friend. You know, you were trying your best to opened my eyes. And he said, it didn't work, but I do remember that you're the only one that said it and then, you know, stood your ground with me. And he said, can we have lunch? You know, it's hard to put friendships back together after that much time, but they did get back together and they did. I went, we went over to his house and had lunch and, you know, they reminisced about the good old days and, you know, they did resume a friendship, but it wasn't as close as it had been. I believe Harlan introduced Jesse to Waylon. I do believe she was married to Dwayne Eddie, I know that, and then some uh, I think she was getting a divorce, but I believe Harlan kind of put the two of them together or inter- made the introduction.
0: Was Harlan ever over at uh, Waylon and Johnny Cash's apartment in Madison?
1: I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, there was, there's talk of them all going fishing, and you know, I think Hank Jr. was there, and Harlan's like, "Oh my God, these guys!" <laughs> were so, like, Harlan was serious about fishing. He was serious about riding. He was serious about fishing, and I'm sure there were some wild tales at the lake at Center Hill Lake.
0: <laughs> they have uh, just all the guys go fishing over there. And- mm-hmm.
1: They all, Harlan said for. 40 years, like every Thursday after he'd write from nine to 12 or, or or he'd write till noon on Thursday. And after that, he'd leave for center Hill. He'd stay up all night. This is where the diet pills come in. He'd stay up all night fishing, you know, fish the next morning, sleep a little bit, fish the next early afternoon, five o'clock when everybody was coming to the lake, he'd be, you know, coming back to town. But When I started riding horses, he's like, I'm going to be paid back for 40 years of fishing. But I probably lost two wives or three wives over fishing. But there there were some tales out at the lake because they all used to go there and hang out at Sligo Boat Dock. And I heard that uh, Harlan said he told Jan... Well, in Jan's book, it says something like, Harlan left him a note, don't try to find me, I've gone to Mexico. Well, he'd really only gone to Center Hill Lake, and she found him there.
0: (laughs) Well, who would be there with him fishing on any given day?
1: Uh, Mel Tillis, Little Jimmy was an avid fisherman, Porter Wagner, because Harlan told me once, he's like, "I want to be cremated," and he said, "I want you to get all my buddies together, or get somebody to take to take you to Center Hill Lake, and where I caught my biggest fish." I was like, how in the world is anybody going to remember that <laughs> and thirty years later? He was like, "They'll know." He's like, "Get Porter or Little Jimmy to take you out and spread my ashes in Center Hill Lake." I did not do that, but that was one of his requests. It changed at the very end. He said, Oh, just put me in the Cumberland River and let me." blow through Nashville one more time. I did do that.
0: Were they so, out there Were they out there bass fishing, catfish? Were, no,
1: it would have been crappier than bass.
0: They'd bring them home and fry them up. Yeah,
1: well, and then there was a story of uh, Mel, I believe it was Mel, that said that Harlan had like the state record fish in his freezer and they all knew it, but they were hungry. And <laughs> so <laughs> they got it out <laughs> Dried it up, and Harlan's like, I was gonna have that one mounted. Uh, he, he, he didn't have it mounted, so but he loved Center Hill Lake and he loved fishing.
0: I appreciate you chatting with me and sharing these stories.
1: Thank you, Otis. I've, I have enjoyed it as well. I love talking about Harlan
0: it's a good subject, <clears throat>
1: it is a great subject. <laughs> Harlan and his songs, my favorite subject.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in and I'd like to thank Melanie for inviting me over to her office over near Music Row. You can find out everything you need to know about Melanie Howard at HarlanHoward.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.